Óyelo bien, óyelo bien, óyelo bien. Welcome to the Conjunto Universal podcast. Let's uh, let's go around the table. Let's see who's who. Alrighty. Well, who am I? My name is George Vincent Lopez. I am the director of this project, Conjunto Universal, the documentary about the band. And yeah, I'm 21 years old, and I'm coming to Miami Dade College and studying film production, television, and digital production. Production. Okay, and you just heard Johannes chime in, right? That's right. My name is Johannes Quiles, and I'm the producer for Conjunto Universal, the documentary. I am a bachelor student and also in the program for film, television, and digital production. I'm also an academic advisor for the School of Entertainment and Design Technology at Miami-Dade oh, College. Oh, there you go. Thank you. My name is Andre. I'm going to be the host of this podcast for Conjunto Universal documentary. So how's the project going right now? Because you guys are still working on it. Well, the project right now is in the editing process. My co-director and my editor, Michael Machozo, we're working very hard around the clock to make sure that we have everything that we need. We're still trying to find a good enough story to tell because there's so much information. There's so much interviews that we had to go through, the transcribing. Johannes and I can vouch for that, saying like it took days just to transcribe just one person's interview. So a lot of work is being done, but on top of that, we're also working on other projects at the same time. So it's kind of, we're kind of battling. Yeah, so what are you guys doing when you're not working on this project? Johannes, <laughs> <laughs> you okay? It's sort of all-consuming because there are just so many moving parts, you know, when you're when you're not transcribing, which George mentioned transcribing, that process, you know, it could take like a full day to do one interview, a 15-minute segment could easily take you four or five hours going back and making sure all the answers are accurate that things are spelled correctly you know sometimes the interviewee will mention something that you know you want to fact check you want to make sure that it's, it's all spelled correctly because in the end it will help you as you're searching through that text and you know that's another reason we do it you want to make sure that you can look through that text when you're trying to quickly access a certain part of an interview. You know, you don't really think about that beforehand too much, how important it is to have everything that was said written down. And like Johannes mentioned, like the text, we're figuring out the story as we go. Like, for example, lo and behold, we found an actual interview from the University of Miami with Jaime Garcia, and he was the actual band leader. And from there on, he's basically the bedrock of the storytelling and through that, we found out saying like, oh, this person was in the band, but then he left. And then there's some nooks and crannies that we never really discuss about. And so we're like, this is really good. Who do we contact? And so through that, we had to contact even more people. We had to ask some people some questions. And so that was more so like a missing link. So we're actually filming while we're editing, which is, it shouldn't be like that, but we're doing it like that. It's also the nature of a documentary sometimes. Until you're in the edit, you can't know how it's going to come together. No. You can prepare, you can prepare, but at the end of the day, if you don't have a certain piece of information, you have to go out and get it. For example, we actually have a legitimate story on our wall, but... Anything can go saying like, okay, we can scratch that off and we can throw in on a new piece of paper. So it's very, it's, it's time consuming. So, but other than that, we're getting it done. 
let's backpedal a little bit because I know I, I wanted to touch on this just because we're going to get to it in more in depth later. Right. It's just good to see how everyone's doing right now. Yeah, we're a little, a little stressed, but, you know, come day or night, you know, <laughs> a little coffee might help. Yeah. It's, it's not all gloom and doom, you know? No, are. absolutely not. We're not like with an umbrella over our heads. Yeah, you guys have a little bit of free time every now and then to do oh, something. Yeah. It has been a fun process. Oh, you know? Absolutely. Learning. Lear- yeah. We're learning a lot as, as we go. Let's move on to and go all the way back to uh, pre-production. Oh, no. <laughs> Who started this? Who did dun, this? Done, done, done. I came up with the idea. Uh, it was after I saw a couple of documentaries and uh, documentary film class, right? It was serving a documentary class. And also once I finished seeing the Shark Doc documentary, which is a huge shout out to Robbie Ramos and Pedro Gomez for actually helping out with the process like that. George is referring to René de Dios and the South Beach Shark Club. Yeah. And after that, I got a little inspired saying they were basically telling a forgotten piece of Miami history. And so I had to step back and say, wait a sec. I know a forgotten piece of Miami history. It's right there. It's literally living inside my house. My dad played in the band. My uncle played in the band. And so I approached them saying, like, would it be okay if I can tell the story about Cajunta Universal? And they said, well, I don't see why not. And so I immediately approached Johannes with the, the proposal of being my producer. And the rest is kind of history. How immediate was it, George? Immediate? A couple of months here and there, you know. Uh, he was saying, I don't know about that. Saying, like, have you ever done a documentary? Is this going to be too big? Do we have the right resources? And I said, I have my father. I have my uncle. And I can get a lot of information through them. And through them, because I have a family friend named Leonardo Villar, who actually gave me thousands and thousands of contact information and so we approached them one by one the first one that we actually nearly landed was Polito and Polito was open arms he would say oh Vitico son okay you can come and interview me about the Kuhn Universal and he, there was this huge mural it, like unbelievable you know his entire wall was filled with Kuhn Universal memorabilia vests posters, albums, you name it. And, and so I think that was the realization saying, like, we have something good on our hands. This was way back in not even – this was pre, pre-production, pre you know. This was getting the information started. I approached Johannes early, like around this time of the year, actually, February of last year in 2018. And so he said, oh, I'll think about it. Johannes, what did you want George to know about how to set this up? I just wanted to make sure that – we had done all the research first because I knew it was going to be a, a long, arduous process with any of the production workshop films in the in the bachelor program here at MDC. It, it requires a lot of effort, a lot of a lot of energy, and I wanted to make sure that this project was going to be able to succeed, especially during the pitching process. That said, right around that time, I was still, I'd say, shoulder deep in another production, a a web series called Love Siempre Es. And that was really just all I was thinking about. I was the assistant director on that show. With all I had on my plate, I, I was a little hesitant to even think about the next production. But um, once I saw that there were so many things that were in our favor, knowing that all these personal connections through George and his family, uh, knowing that these connections, that these generous people were so willing to be open and provide us so many resources, it was hard to say no. So I'm curious, when both of you were together on the project, was there any point where 
the project would shift in priority or storytelling or how it was going to go? I would think so, you know, because we ideally had a main character, but then we quickly changed that main character, and then we wanted to follow this driving force, but we decided not to. You know, there was a lot of things going in and out. There were a lot of perspectives through which we could have taken this from the the band leader now and, and the band's current uh, stage lineup if we wanted to, to take that route, or did we want to go the route of the historian of the band who was there for a really long time? Did we want to take that interview that we discovered at the University of Miami with uh, Jaime Garcia and his perspective? And just looking back, there was a lot that we could consider, but I'm really happy with the direction we're going in. No, now. absolutely. And that has to deal with a lot with our co-director, Michael Machoso, who actually came up with the idea of telling the story from the band's perspective in a chronological order. If someone says something else and they'll say, well, that wasn't true, this is what really happened. So it's kind of like rebuttaling a lot of information. But for most of the interviews, it's pretty set in stone saying like everything that they said was pretty true to everyone else's interviews. If they say Jaime was a teacher, they always said Jaime was a teacher. They would say he was an instructor, he was an instructor. He was a ranger, he was an arranger. He would bring the Cuban people over here who lost everything, hope and life down here in Miami, they, they all said the same thing. So, yeah, other than that, we're very happy with the direction of where this documentary is going. All right. You told us earlier about you getting all the contact information. Yes. Were any of the musicians hard to get to when you called them? At first, yeah, but then it's kind of like the little bighorn. You know, you start out small, and then all of a sudden you go big. For example, we landed an interview with a musician, and we immediately called another musician saying, like, hey, we would like to interview you. They said, no, we're too busy. We have school. I'm working at the University of Miami, blah, blah, blah. You know, the, the whole song song and dance are around the bush. So they, they said, like, they're not interested anymore. But then all of a sudden, once we're done with that interview with the other musician, they immediately called saying, like, hey, I want to be involved in it. Right. As soon as they heard their yeah. buddies are getting involved, they want right. to be involved. Too. Oh, absolutely. And and not just their close buddies, like, but everyone. We were trying to scope out the entire horizon. Right. So some of them were hesitant. Oh, about absolutely. This. Absolutely. Like, for example, my dad was a little hesitant. Wow. Like, oh. Your dad of all. I mean, your dad, he wants you to succeed. Of course. But like he was a little hesitant. But like everyone was a little hesitant, you know, because you're talking about like 40 Years ago, you know, right. no one, they were young, they were having fun, they were playing music. It was like a little side thing for them. It wasn't really, for them, this wasn't like a huge, huge thing. But for others, it was like a big Miami sensation. Anytime you, you dig up the past, you know, there's always going to be that sort of push against it. Just because there were many good times, but, you know, there's also things that people just are unsure. Maybe they're going to come up. Maybe there'll be something unpleasant somebody mentions, and nobody wants to think about the bad times, right? Because time usually has a way of bringing those things, or, or pushing those things to the side, I should say. And so you don't want to be in a situation where you have to talk about something unpleasant that maybe you don't remember all the facts about it anymore. You want to focus on the positive. And thankfully, that's what it became, you know, when everybody started talking about their experiences. They really, really let us know what it was like, and... It, it wasn't just pleasant experiences. They talked about some of the unpleasant ones as well. Right. But but at the end of the day, everybody was really thought that this was such a beautiful experience and it was a beautiful time to be alive and a great 
way to, to celebrate this time period is to be a part of this documentary and tell your full story. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Like Joanna says, they talked about the good, they talked about the bad, and they talked about the ugly. What could have been something great slowly die down and all stuff, but I'm not going to talk about much about that because we want all of us to see the final product. So right, I'm going to keep it hush-hush for now. You guys got some great locations, in my opinion. Can you guys talk about how you got some of those locations? Oh, wow. Johannes, you, would you yeah. do us the honor in mentioning our lovely location manager? Our, our locations manager, uh, Juancho Rodriguez. Yes. Thank you so much, Juancho. Shout out to him. Who's also working on his own documentary called Inhumankind. Yes, Juancho was so instrumental in securing things and taking things off our plate, essentially, because we had so much going on preparing for shooting Juancho really took the lead in contacting the places. We found a recording studio, and I was essentially the one who found it, but I'm like, look, Juancho, please, I need you to follow up and make sure this happens because we had so much going on at the time. Mm -hmm. After that, shooting at Versailles Restaurant, it's such an iconic place. And again, he reached out to the restaurant, and one thing led to another, and surely enough, we were able to get it. It's like... Is there any place he couldn't get if he were asked? <laughs> yeah, Versailles is a big ask, and, and he got it. He got his ball and chain as well for another interview oh, wow. more recently. I mean, just, just to actually be on, on at another restaurant on Calle Ocho, it's really, really just a testament to his dedication, his hard work, and the inroads he's, he's made uh, oh, with yes. contacts in, in the business. Absolutely. Yeah, th those were definitely when, uh, when you guys were you know, putting in the chat, all the places you guys are filming. And I was like, oh, man, this is this is it, man. This is good. Yeah. And then the, the big reveal was when we sold it was for size because yeah. fun fact and why we chose for size is because not only is it a world renowned. Yeah. Cuban landmark or a Miami Absolutely. landmark. It's well known ar around the world. But back then, it was the only place that you were grab something. And it was open 24-7 and it still is probably. And the band used to go there every now and then after gigs and after rehearsals. And some of their fans would come over there and have cafecito, a club sandwich, something light. Because it, they were usually in around 2, 3, maybe 4 o'clock in the morning. And so they were saying like, oh, hey, vamos a Versailles. Yeah. It's, so. such, it's such an inviting place. And, and they're really film friendly. I mean, absolutely. Almost everything we asked for, we got right away. And even people who saw us filming came over, stopped by, said hello. They're like, oh, oh yeah, we, we see them, you know, bring cameras in here all the time. And it's really cool that you're doing this celebration of this band. You know, it was just a very pleasant experience all around at, at Versailles. So right. Many thanks. And also to at Ball and Chain, too. You know, you had a lot of people taking pictures of us. This last interview that we did about uh, two weeks ago. And it's incredible on how how small the city of Miami is for, versus how big we really know how it is. Just sure. the, the, the production design alone it helped out tremendously. At Valenchain, they really pay attention to detail in a great way in terms of their decorations, um, in terms of the food, even the food oh, that yeah. we had on the table during the interview. I mean, it just on camera, it just came alive. It really just added so much that and also the artwork and the background. It was just truly spectacular. Right. No, absolutely. That's pretty much how the production design went and the locations. Big shout out to Juancho Rodriguez for landing those locations and for 
for us sticking to our guns, saying like, no, we're we're gonna film here. We're not gonna take no for an answer. Absolutely. I like to know because I know it's probably the most stressful part. In my opinion, it's the most stressful part. How did the pitch organization go, and then finally to give the pitch in front of this board? Well. We had to give credit where credit's due. Michael Machoso was part of that pitching process, and he's one of the original story members because the story's really by three people. You have me, Johannes, and Michael Machoso, who all sat down before the pitch and said, okay, this is how the story's going to go, and we all agreed on it. Going back to your question, uh, the pitch was nerve-wracking, for me at least. You're not talking about four or five people. You're talking about like 12, maybe 13 people. Am I right? Mm Uh, in the room, you mean? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, so it was, it was a little scary at first because it's a lot of sharks out there wanting to take a bite out of you, you know. I felt a little intimidated, but as the the process went through, you know, I got a little bit more comfortable. I started talking about myself. Johannes talked about himself and, and us coming together. Mikey talked about the location and the aesthetics and how it would look like, and then Johannes knocked it out of the park with that budget, you know, and so... Michael joining the project was really such a great moment. Uh, he joined the project, it was shortly before the pitch, just a few weeks before. Because we were desperate of a DP. Because our originally our DP was Emily Ruiz, but she had her music video right already set to go. So I sat down with Emily saying, like, we're working on our projects. We respect each other. If we need any help, we'll help each other out. But for now, we went on, on our separate ways. And so I was... Desperate and looking for a DP, and lo and behold, we stumbled upon Michael Machoso, which we both knew him because we had advanced cinematography class together. We both worked on projects together, and he had a key eye. Like, he was good at how the the story looked just by looking at the script, you know, just by looking at what the aesthetics are. How late did he join into the project? Like Johannes said, about a week or two before the pitch. Wow. So, so it's like you, you were dumping all this all this stuff load on, him, on and, him and he turned it around and oh absolutely he had to essentially download all this information <laughs> <laughs> and he had to jump right in and he did and he owned it from the beginning you Since know once, day one. once we filled him in on on everything we'd done and everything that, that was going on we didn't mention this earlier but during the research portion of the project we shot interviews with a lot of the band members in order to do a proof of concept video to show with the pitch and, you know, a lot of people asked us, oh, well, like, why are you going to ask the school for, like, more resources to do interviews if you already did them? Well, that wasn't really shooting for the documentary. Yeah. That was just us doing research and just recording that process of getting the research. There was mm-hmm. no, like, library to go to, to to get this information. It's all word of mouth. And right. so in order to do that, we had to, like, talk to people and make sure that all of that was documented. We couldn't just write everything down. So that's why it was good that we, we recorded it. And like Johanna said, there's literally no information about this band. Yeah, there's nothing to work with as far as you needed to come with a proof of concept oh, and you needed to basically build it from the ground up because nothing existed a- or absolutely. something one video existed of the university of miami interview but that was like the inspiration to get more and right no that's what let the fire for us to say like hey we have to do this and so michael wasn't there for those initial interviews i wish he had been so he could have been fully immersed in it but the fact of the matter is that once he saw what we had and and what we had going on he really just made it his own it was his baby too and i loved that about him and i loved his passion and his willingness to just go for it and so he joined the project and 
we kept getting um, a lot of feedback from our professor, Adrian Garcia, about how to conduct this pitch, how to get up there and present it so that it had a good chance of being selected. And a lot of his suggestions really kind of like broke us down. Every time we tried a different perspective, it was like, no, well, that's not good enough. We'll add more drama. It was good because it made it stronger. But it really did kind of like put us in a place where we just we didn't know which way to go that was going to be most effective to get selected. And Michael, you know, once he joined in, he gave us his thoughts and his perspective. And all of a sudden it was, yes, why didn't we think of this sooner? It makes sense. It took somebody from the outside to look into this and be like, everything's right there. You just need to... Yep fix a puzzle pointed out exactly mm-hmm. and and he did that so well and, and that's why we love him so much and we're grateful that he's a part of this show and that he's become such a member of the family mm-hmm. we love him very much michael going back to the pitching at first i thought that saying because sandy leiterman and a whole bunch of other people saying like this is going to be impossible it's going to be hard for you to get all this information and this and that and in 15 minutes it's going to be really difficult But like usual, I usually bounce back saying, like, we're not going to just get their story, but we're going to talk about the rise of fall and what happened afterwards. You know, that was essentially our pitching thought was, and we sold on Versailles, and by the grace of God, we got selected. Probably, most likely, and don't quote me on this, and maybe Johannes may be able to... Johannes looks like he has a disagreement. (laughs) No, not at all. It's really... uh, Shocking. on, On point there. I just, I keep thinking back to the day of the pitch, and... I was such a nerve wrack. It, like, it was so tense, tense, mustard. Ugh. It was like everyone was, like, on their toes. <laughs> but, no, I'm being serious. From the uh, moment no. I woke up that day, it was just, you yeah, know, it was butterflies all day, all day. You know what's so funny is that both of you feel that way. And when I saw your project and what you guys were going to pitch, I knew you guys were going to get picked. You guys had an amazing project, but you guys clearly did not. <laughs> you guys are still nervous, huh? Yeah. Uh, absolutely, because it's like, what are the odds of they saying, like, you have all the material, but we don't need this project? That might have to do with the budget. That might have to do with the amount of resources, because think about it. Budget only costs, like, what, $500? I what? mean, probably a little more. A little um, bit more than $500, but, but it was clearly under 1000 And so they're saying probably to themselves, like, why would we give them anything pretty much make this on their own but they thought probably hey this is good publicity this is good for the city of miami this is probably a whole bunch of things i'm not just saying that that's the main reason i'm just saying that that's probably one of the main reasons why our film got picked plus our our confidence and we have to not to toot our own horns but we were pretty confident in our project because and again a lot of people are saying like oh it's too much and this and that and blah 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 but we stuck to our guns and we said that like listen we're gonna do this whether you guys like it or not and so they gave us the green light so it was really like i said it was all day you're just sort of like shaking how's this gonna go i mean you watch a show like shark tank for example and people can go in and and the the presentation can be completely polished and ready to go and once people start asking questions everything just kind of falls Falls apart apart. so that was it felt exactly like shark tank that was the biggest concern that you know is this gonna fall apart once people start asking more questions, even though I felt like we had covered our bases, we were prepared in case certain things did come up. But you always have that feeling in the back of your mind, which is good. It's a good feeling because, you know, it makes you, it keeps you humble. Yeah, it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you honest, as, as Josh Ellis, our professor, likes to say. But even so, the day of the pitch, 
you know, we were ready, but I remember there was all this running around that we were trying to help our, our other classmates also because, you know, they forgot something or they needed something. And right. it's like, oh, okay, we got you. Don't worry. Don't worry. Focus on, on what you need to do. And, and it's like, well, I guess we were so confident that we didn't need to really think about our own pitch all that much. We already kind of had rehearsed it. And yeah, we came up with a game plan and we just laid it down. And I'm glad we were able to help our classmates with their own pitch too. It was It was really... I mean, it helped out in the long run because everyone got to make their own project during the pitching stage. Every project practically got selected, and yeah. so it was really, really a great moment. And I love that we were able to pitch in and help everybody right. out. And also, well, I want to say one more thing about the pitch. Oh, gosh. Because this might oh, no. help future future workshop students. The pitch goes by so fast. It does. The time goes by so fast. You start talking about the project and you just sort of get lost in what you're saying because you're like focused on the points you have to cover. And then lo and behold, time is up. And you're like, I thought we had 15, 20 minutes to do this. Yeah, you did. And, and the time is up. It's actually less. It's actually 10 minutes. And I apologize for because I was getting wrapped up in the story. Michael was getting wrapped up in the aesthetics and the looks. And then he only had like a minute and 30 seconds to just speed run through that budget. Be succinct you know? and know your points, know your material. And again, our rehearsals really helped with that. Right, absolutely. We, we did rehearse it you, a few you times. You need to so. rehearse for that constantly, going over the points. You might stumble here, a few there, you know, like I did because I was trying to get a word across. And then Michael said, you mean this word? I'm like, yes, thank you. And so you get right back on track, you know? Absolutely. The time goes by really fast. So, so. that was another point. But, but everything worked out. All right. Let's move on to production because that's... Oh, no. Oh, what, what do you... This is the easy it, part, isn't it? So you think. <laughs> so how did it go? In general, were you expecting it to be any different? I think both of us could agree saying, like, it turned out a lot better than what we expected. Wouldn't you? The production days themselves went by really smoothly. And, you know, that's a testament to our assistant directors, our first AD, Lenny Sharcius, and our second AD, Isabella Cano. Oh, and I also got to mention our UPM for staying on top of the budget. That's another person that we forgot to include in the pre-production, Juliana. Juliana Cadavid, yes. And um, everybody kind of worked well together. Juliana had recommended Lenisha, and through my own experiences with Isabella, I recommended her to join the production team as well. And I just, I loved how they communicated so well with each other, and they were able to get things done and to ensure s smooth production days. Um, even the one day that we were at the North Shack studio, uh, in Hialeah, the day was scheduled to go on so much longer, and we finished two or three hours early. I mean, mm -hmm. that really was just such a testament to their hard work, to their really pushing us and making sure we didn't waste a moment. So I'm really grateful to them for that. I'm really grateful to them for just staying so organized and keeping us up to date on any issues they were having. They were really good at that. Did you guys have any struggles during production? You know, on day one, it was a little slow because we had a somewhat of a skeleton crew during the second half. You know, because for Cool Beaches interview, we had like a full crew helping us out. We had graphics, grips, and all that. But by the day, slowly dwindling, we had somewhat of a skeleton crew. And don't forget also the first day, one of the interview subjects was unable to make it. And so I think that sort of slowed it down as well a little right. bit, right? And then time-wise, you know, because we had a, a certain amount of time. You want to say thanks to Lanisha for keeping us on time. You know, that saved us. That wasn't really much of a struggle, if anything. But that was, if she wasn't there, then that would have been a really big 
struggle for us. We, we wouldn't have been setting up the lights. It would have been an hour and a half instead of like 30 minutes go. We got to have the scene ready because the interviewee is right there sitting there. And I was talking to him. And that's another good thing that, that was off my plate was because Michael Machozo, he was technically my co-director on set. When I was dealing with the actors, warming them up, asking them questions, saying, how are you? The whole shabil. He was basically here saying, okay, I want the light over there. I want the interview over here. I want a dimmer. He was basically setting up the scene. He will call me. I would like it. Boom. We'll, we'll shoot. And so that was one of another thing that was a little stress-free. But if he wasn't there, that would have probably definitely stressed me out. So I'm thankful for Michael for stepping up to the plate and saying, I told him, say, hey, you like the scene and you tell me where the camera is going to be. I told him saying he's going to be right by the piano. He'll set up right, right by the piano, but he'll incorporate all the lighting and everything else like that. The challenges that we faced a lot was also like the crew members. Yes. You know, we, we understand that people are busy and... I completely forgot about this, yeah. And, you know, we're shooting a, a student project at the end of the day. And so we don't have a lot that we can offer people in terms of payment to, to secure their time with us. The fact that we were able to kind of come through, that we were able to find people who came through for us, especially at the last minute when certain people were unable to make it or, you know, they let us know that even though they had said they would come... Something came up or they forgot they had class or they forgot they had to go to work. Maybe they got called into work unexpectedly. How can you not understand when someone's going through that? Of course, you have to understand and there's no, there was no ill will there. There was no need to get mad about that. It's just, okay, let's just find someone else who can help us out. And, you know, thankfully, yes, there was always somebody there. There were always people available to, to come and help. And if they didn't, well, we... We were able to, to make it through somehow because we're here to tell the story now. Like Johanna says, our crew was a little bit of a struggle because they would come in and out. And But like uh, we had to oversize our crew by 20 people. And so you have other people saying like, whoa, why do you need like 20 people on a documentary? That's too much. Well, if we oversize it, then little by little, we'll get to down to about seven through ten people that that would actually come out and help us out and so that was actually johannes's strategy because he's been working on so many sets and this and that so it's an excellent strategy yes so you want to have people who are who are aware of, of what's going on because if you have to keep informing them uh, every single time uh, somebody new comes into the production you know it's just it's going to keep holding you back so it's good to have had like backups and backups and backups another struggle that we really have to say is the sound mixer there was we went through five or six different sound mixers hell i had to sound mix johannes had the sound mix it's like every day of the production there was a new sound, sound mixer <laughs> <laughs> literally two, oh two two sound mixers in one day you know you had richard and you had josh bennett sound mixing so that's another thing that uh, that we said okay. That's a that's a re that was a really big struggle for us is finding a consistent sound mixer that will be there day in day out. People are just so scared to take on that role. I don't know what it is the I, I don't the know. equipment now. I mean, it's fairly it's easy to use, so it can't be that. I don't I don't understand why why there's this hesitance to to do sound. People who were available be like, oh, I'll come and be a PA. It's like, oh, good. Can you handle sound? No, I'm not doing sound. And it's like. Don't be so scared of it. Like, try it, and you might like it, or you might, like, you learn might feel more... Or two. You might learn a thing or two. You might feel more confident about it. But any time that 
you, you know you're scared to do something just try it that just that goes for anything mm-hmm. it's such an essential part of oh, this absolutely. documentary if absolutely. someone you know well, i think the best sound mixer that we had was travis hands down travis and um steve roa those two are like pretty much the best sound mixers that we had on production and that's because they work with sound so much. They're constantly on different gigs doing sound. And it's easy to, for them to be able to find work because people are so reluctant to do sound. And so that's more work for them. That's job mm-hmm. security for them, you know? So, so we're good. We were blessed. That, and they were available, most importantly. Absolutely. What were your favorite moments? Uh, the humor that was on set from the band members. Oh, yeah? Yeah, there were, some of them were pretty funny. You know, yeah, you have Leo Villar being uh, a family friend of mine, but he's always poking jokes at me saying that like, oh, little Georgie, because he told the crew saying like one Christmas, I, I will point up to Rudolph and I wouldn't say Rudolph. I would say the D, the D, the D. He would say like, oh, you would come over here to my house and you would pick up something and smash it, like drop it. <laughs> and my George, and, were you a cat? I, I I don't know. I didn't. I, I didn't think I was a cat, but he wouldn't kind of poke fun of me here and there on set. But you know, you let the punches roll because you know he's a family friend of mine. He ranks on my dad all the time, and my dad ranks on him sometimes. So it's like it's family friend. You know, him, him, and my dad are go way back, way, way back. So they're very close friends. So, but uh, other than that, probably for Johannes too is the the moment where we got. Uh, pretty much everyone there at Versailles, you know, a lot of people said that this would not happen at all. And sure enough, it did. I was scared. I was scared that people wouldn't show up to the restaurant, especially since they had already come out to do their interview the last few days. thought, well, we probably maxed out on the time they'd be willing to give us. Sometimes some of those interviews would go on for like an hour and a half or two hours. And I mean, we already thought that that was being generous. And so having them come out of like a second day to to come to this reunion, it was like, will they show up? Will they not show up? And and so there was a lot of that. But they did. Thankfully, they did. A big group of them was there to conduct the reunion, to be able to see each other again. And for us to capture that on camera was, was really special. My favorite moment every time we would finish a production day. <laughs> every time we finished and everything went well, it was like, okay, we did it. I'm happy. <laughs> because, you know, anything could just go wrong and you got to right. be prepared. You got to no, be absolutely. prepared. For it was like things. one less gorilla off our back. Yes, it was just like another thing done, something else like checked off that, that we, uh, we had to do. For um, Michael's favorite moment, it was probably happy hour, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah? Oh, my gosh. He would say, like, uh, is the martini shot ready? Okay, after this? <laughs> but, yeah, we had some fun moments on set. People actually giving them their all on sets, you know, telling us their story, laying it all out on the floor. And so that was probably another favorite moment of mine, saying, like, no one probably held back. No one probably, if it was a question, they would answer it. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't hold back. They wouldn't say too much. You know, if it was a question about something, they would answer it truthfully. So that was probably another favorite moment of mine. I mean, this was really the first time that so many of the band members were willing to like sit down and tell their story. After so many years. Yeah, especially after so many years. But, I mean, there have been other shows, other journalists, other productions that have tried to um, tell the story of Conjunto Universal. But it was hard because there were so many members over the course of 
you know, almost like 15 years. And so it was hard for it to be comprehensive. And the fact that so many people actually came out now to tell their story. And it really helped that George was the one leading the way the in, in, term, link. in terms of talking to them and conducting the interviews because it made them open up a little bit more knowing that it was still like a member of the family, that it wasn't just like an outsider just trying get information it was truly like it came together it was a family member who was taking charge of this it was somebody they could trust to tell their story the right way and like johannes said to me during the production he was saying and you can you can stop me if i'm wrong he said that like i think this is the reason why the story has never been told before because of that that personal connection for whatever reason why no one has ever touched on this band before, God only knows why. But it didn't start until now. Why now, for me, all this to to come together? You know, they shouldn't. They they could have done this ten years ago. And they could have done this twenty years ago. No one really knew who they were, what they did. I would listen to stories around the dinner table all the time when my dad and my uncle would come over, talking about Cajun Universal and some funny moments. But I, Johannes definitely told me, saying, like, I think this is the reason why the story has never been told before. It was because of us. It was because of me having that personal connection with these family members. And like he said, it's like we're family, you know. Everyone says, like, your dad's like my brother. You know, your uncle's like my brother. We're all brothers, you know. And we weren't trying to, in the questions we were asking them, we weren't trying to, to dig for dirt and try to make anybody look bad, like, so many people would probably go in with those intentions just to create drama and to give people, you know, something. Well, through to those questions, out came drama because we asked some questions and then they basically told us what the drama was without letting us ask about, whoa, was there something interesting that happened? You know, like, no, they just said, like, this is what happened. This is what caused us to fall and all that stuff. So we weren't trying to be scandalous or salacious or anything like that. It was just we just wanted the story. They wanted to hear from them. Their what, point of view. Their yeah. point of view, their perspective, their their experience. You know, it was such a special time in Miami, you know, with in the 70s. And, and to be able to capture the, the Cuban exile experience, that was really what we were after. Because it was such a big part of that time period. A big way for the Cuban exiles to socialize and enjoy their music from back home. Their traditional Cuban music that you just it would be lost otherwise all right let's let's we're we're going full circle now we're we're back at post production now oh no yes we're where we are right now how is the edit itself going slowly slowly right it's difficult is is there any inspirations of how you're going to cut yes, it yes we have a, a lot of inspiration we have inspirations from buena visa social club and a band called Depth, which were the two films that i presented to the pitch and i told michael machoso saying watch these two documentaries he did he says I, I understand where you're going with it and those are roughly the two main sources film sources that we're going for a little bit of Renee Dendios and the South Beach Shark Club that's the student film that really inspired me to make this project a little bit of that too but now we're looking more for like the post feel for it you know we're looking at searching for Sugarman which is an excellent documentary you know it has that style of 
it was during the seventies as well. So it has like niche kind of cool, laid back rock and roll vibe, you know, and we're trying to find an effect where we spin the dial and it lands on like, you know, 1968, we spin the dial and then it goes 1982 or something like that. So we're taking a lot of inspiration from a lot of films, you know, and we're meshing it all together. But as of inspiration for the cut, I would say it will be definitely searching for Sugarman. Is anybody helping out Mike? Because Michael, I feel like this is the part where Michael would. I'm helping him out. I'm helping him out tremendously. You know, I'm I'm lending him a hand and all that stuff. I'm making sure that everything is okay. I'm going to his house, spending all nighters with him. So he's not in this battle alone. You know, I'm as much as he he loves editing. I'm I'm helping him out a lot with that process. I'm getting all the archival footage. I'm getting all the music. I'm researching all the transcriptions and saying like, okay, what do you need next and all that stuff? And he says, oh, I need something from this character. So I quickly search it up on my computer or quickly search it up from the transcriptions. So like, here, here's a good one. And he'll quickly put it in there. They're doing a phenomenal job with all of this. I know it's a big investment of time and I'm really grateful that they're all so willing to do it and that they're just taking it upon themselves or taking the initiative to make it happen without much prodding from me definitely so I'm, I'm really grateful for them right is there anything that you already know is not going to make it but you wish could go in there as of now i don't know anything, i don't know anything on the on the cutting room floor <laughs> yeah. as they say? maybe some scenes with some people I, i'm terrible at this <laughs> no I, i'm sure that they contribute a lot and you're very happy johannes is about to burst into laughter right we'll, here we'll, we'll cut that out <laughs> yeah don't, don't worry everything's on the cutting room floor at this oh podcast. yes you better cut this out of the podcast. <laughs> no, no don't worry I, I was on set one day and um i know that some of the or at least i know one of the musicians did pick up an instrument at some point and did play mm-hmm. do you guys know if you're gonna put any of these guys like did any of the other guys pick up instruments and start uh, playing uh yeah uh, we had a few of them pick up instruments but it was only like yeah, just, I mean, it was great when this one guy was here. Lou he Perez, was, yeah. It was Lou? Okay. The trombone, right? Yeah, the trombone. And he was having trouble with the slide. Yeah. It was because... The, a, it, that's an excuse. No, <laughs> it looked like the slide was messed up, and it wasn't oiled properly or something, and he was having a hard time, and and he just hit those notes suddenly, and it was just like, oh, there he is. He's comfortable playing. Yeah, yes. he's still comfortable playing. A lot of these playing. musicians, that's their character. You know, if you look at my, like, for example, if you look at my father, he's a musician. He writes. He doesn't play anymore, but he writes for a publication, and that's what he loves to do. He teaches, and he, that's what he loves to do. Uh, my uncle, he used to play music. That's He enjoys listening to music. Kuwiche, uh, he loves uh, all these musicians. I mean, they're all musicians. They love music. Yeah. That's part of their character. I mean, I wish you would have seen, you know, some other musicians play, you know, and say like, wow, this guy really still has it, you know, after so many years. And Lou, God bless him. He's he's recovering from yeah. from a stroke. And about he, a year ago. About a year ago. And he, he's, he's doing wonderfully. And we're so grateful that he came all the way down here to Miami-Dade College North Campus to be a part of this film and to tell us his story and then to actually have him pick up an instrument and Play. give it a shot like that's that was just icing on the cake it was, yeah it was, it was. i mean he, he it was he, sweet he literally heard a tune and then he quickly Havana, ooh, nah, nah, I you yeah. know some musicians are like that they say okay is that in g and then they they just go ooh, to town they just go for it yeah 
I, I actually enjoyed those little side moments too, you know, of them just being themselves. And that's the whole point of this documentary was some people thought that this was going to be like nerve wracking, intense. Yeah, you were going to be interviewing superstars. These yeah. are people. Well, we, we were trying to go for the superstars, but that's not going to happen. But we yeah. tried. We tried. We definitely tried. And you know what? I, th- I think the work will stand for itself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, because you have some people that play with these superstars, so they'll want to wish that they were on. They can't say they weren't asked, or that yeah, they, they exactly they didn't know about it. Exactly. Overall, have you guys enjoyed the journey of Conjunto Universal? Oh I, yeah, I think so. I can't deny it. Through the thick and mud, going through the trenches on this journey, I, as much as I like to complain about the little things, and same with Johannes too. I actually enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed getting behind the camera, actually directing my first ever documentary. Uh, even though I'm co-directing with it, I wouldn't pick a better co-director. I wouldn't pick a better producer. You know, I wouldn't pick a better team. This team and this experience has been a blessing. I keep on telling Johannes every day, saying, Johannes, no matter how you look at it, we're, we're blessed. We're blessed on the outcome. We're blessed on the amount of people, the amount of fans that we're now getting. For this documentary, like a lot of people are coming up to us saying, "Like, hey, how's the documentary going? Oh, wait, can't, great, can't wait to see it." People are actually legitimately excited about this project, and so that's like, wow! For the first time, that actually brings a smile to not only my face, I'm pretty sure to Johannes's face too. So I can't, I can't thank Johannes enough for stepping up to the plate and being my producer. I can't, once again, I'm being really repetitive right now, but I can't picture this film without a much better producer than Johannes. Thank and you. his thank you, his, George. Thank you. His dedication and his inspiration that coming from his family members, and I'm talk about that for a second. You know and how you legitimately said like, "Yes, I want to do this project," because it was it your family or something like that. Yes, it really was. Uh, you know, once I I told my mother that I was considering working on this project, and I said, "Oh, have you heard of this band?" And she's like. What do you mean have I heard of this band? Of course I've heard of this band. She goes, why are you asking me? I was like, oh, because, you know, I was approached to produce this documentary. And, you know, I mean, I hadn't really heard much about them. So, but it was during that time period that you all were growing up. And, and she says, yes, of course, of course, um, I remember them. And, and your aunt and your uncle used to go to the dances all the time to watch their performances. And I'm like, you're kidding. She's like, oh, yeah, they were big fans. And I said, whoa, okay, there's something here. And I want to explore that because, you know, it's such a big part of, you know, my own heritage and, you know, being Cuban-American and not having lived through that sort of crisis that my family went through when when they came here from Cuba. I, I really wanted to explore that time period a little bit more. And I did, and I got to, and in doing my research, I, I watched a lot of documentaries about that time period, specifically produced here locally in Miami, which also served as inspiration for me to kind of be like, okay, I like this, I like where this is going, now I, I can put this all into context, and I, I can visualize myself being there, and that's what I want to do for this film too. I want to make sure the audience is transported to that time period. That's really important to understand everything that was happening here. It wasn't just people coming here for, for economic reasons, like they really were refugees and, and they had nowhere to go. So it's, it's truly something special that really, really was dear to my heart. It, uh, there's a family story here. And at the end of the day, that's really what sells it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's family. 
the bottom line is is that like I sold the pitch as a personal passion project. It's more of a family project. It is a family project. All these band members were they were family at one point. And for for me, this is my family. This is part of my family heritage. Like you know, Hannah said, being an American born in a Cuban household, both fifty fifty because my mom's American but my dad's Cuban. I grew up listening to Latin music, salsa music, and I kind of didn't like it at first, but then I, it started growing on me and growing on me, and I learned how to appreciate it as I got older. I think in high school is when I really started appreciating my roots and where I came from, really and truly. Uh, when my high school jazz band would play all these jazz tunes that my dad used to listen to, or he used to play them, you know, Oye Como Va, La Negra Tina Tumbao, the girl from Impanima, all these great tunes that my dad said, like, man, these were hot tunes when I was growing up. These were really, really great tunes, and it sounded good, too. And so, moreover, with my experience on this story, is that, yeah, I would say I've enjoyed the journey, and I couldn't ask for a better film experience for this project. This is my last year here at Miami Day College and my, my last ever film here at Miami Day College directing. Uh, I know that I'm going to be associate producing a lot of other projects and helping them out, but this is my last this is my last stamp on the whole the whole thing, you know? And so yeah. you make it sound so sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, but like it it isn't because it's like I'm you know, I'm I'm going to make this film Regardless, I like I told Johannes and like I told Mikey saying like, hey, if the committee doesn't pick it or Miami Day doesn't pick it, I'm still going to make it. It's a triumphant moment for us, kind of putting together everything that that we've learned over the past few years. And, and, and just like literally this, this all started a year ago. And look where we are today. It's crazy. Fe it's legitimately crazy. Feeling like legit professionals, you know, that's how it feels kind of putting all of this together. What do you want people to take away from when they see this? When it's finished and when it's out there in the world? A sense of pride, heritage pride, a sense of cultural pride, and a sense of, hey, Miami was not a, a legitimate hot spot for all these people. Miami was not just, you know, people talk about the Miami sound, Miami sound machine, you know, the Bee Gees. Disco era, you know, you have the Latin fusion, you know, Willie Chanino, all these other Latin artists, and also a lot of American artists that came down here. But it all started with Conjunto Universal. Conjunto Universal was a band of exiles that came from Cuba, started a band to give back the community what once they had, and, and now it's lost. The famous Baile Cubanos were a time where people would go on Saturday nights forget whatever they had that week and just dance the night away and just forget everything that was going around them and just remember the time that they danced in Havana or Camaway or wherever in Cuba. It was a special time in Miami that Cubans were regrouping and they were saying, hey, we're not home, but let's make this our home. And so that's the whole... Right, because their home was taken away from them. Of course, and... It really sheds a light on, on a period of transition here due to the fact that it was in the 70s. There weren't cameras all around. Everybody didn't have a camera on their phone recording things as it happened and posting it on social media. You didn't have that. Cameras were expensive and they were big and bulky and, 
And it, that's why it's so it's so hard to get footage from that time period from the performances that the band had. And it's also important to note that South Florida has always had a rich cultural tradition of music. Even before Conjunto Universal, the African-American musicians who were here, I know Aretha Franklin and, and others would, would perform at the Lyric Theater in Overtown. And so I feel like it all... Even way before then, you had Chet Baker and Louis Armstrong coming down here. Miami was a happening place. You know, you had live bands all around Ocean Drive. Every hotel had a live band. You know, my dad would say, hey, the Jack King Gleason show was live down here. The Ed Sullivan show was live down here. Those were big, big bands. Right now, what we're seeing, like Johanna says, is a change in music. We're starting to hear a little bit of the Latin fusion now on our radios, on commercials, on TV, but it's still not the same. We don't have that live, live orchestra anymore. You know, we don't have that live Latin jazz band anymore. You know, it's all done in the studio now. But it's it's really interesting to see how just a couple of years ago, like. Uh, a song in Spanish was the number one song in the country for 16 weeks and, you know, matching a previous record. And so it was really something special to see this cultural shift happening. And what do you want people to take away <laughs> for, uh, for the film is that that sense of pride ship, you know, like they're glad that to be part of this community down here. What about people who aren't from this community? Then it's a it's a history lesson. Yeah, it's a history lesson. It, like Johanna said, it shines a light on a specific subject and a specific era, of a specific ethnicity group that was pretty much dominant in the seventies. That's really important to to raise awareness of of the Cuban experience in Miami. You know, to have these people coming from a different country and whether they were seen as a nuisance to some or whether it was something that they thought would just be temporary, this sort of film should educate people and, and inform them about what it was like for that group of people, for the Cuban-Americans who were here. That's something that's that's really important that they take away, just that they learn about more about their surroundings, right? Especially the ones who, who do live here. And the ones who don't live here, well, even more important that they that they learn about this because Conjunto Universal did perform with, say, like a lot of the Puerto Ricans from New York who would come down and visit. That was something else that came to light also. There's always that whole like fight back and forth between the, the Puerto Ricans with the salsa and the Cubans with their different styles and so how they have all influenced each other. That's really something that's coming to light with this film. I can't uh, agree more. What are your plans for the future, both of you? World domination. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Try no. to take over the world. Well, uh, plans for the future. Hopefully we can submit this to film festival runs, and hopefully this will shine a light on the subject because this is this is a story that needs to be told this is a story that everyone needs to hear not only in miami but around the world without a doubt getting that film out there and making sure that we we target the right people who want to see this who maybe might be interested in in doing something different or expanding on it or or wanting to learn about other bands more bands from that time period i mean 
and anything's possible anything's possible and it's just a matter of staying optimistic and open-minded and and see what opportunities arise from that very much do hope that this film will be archived and shown to many people generations from now you know young generation because think about it you can walk up to any random stranger right now our age 20 to 30 ask him oh do you know who Kundo Universal is and I'll be like I, I had no idea who they were before you talked about them. See, I, Johannes didn't know, but his but his mother did. My father knew about them. I, I told him about it, and he knew. You know, my, but you know, my father's an exception. His grandfather was, or his father was a was a musician as well. Right. So, it's like our parents, maybe even our grandparents, might even know about them. But this young generation has no idea. So it, it's more of an eye opening, saying like, whoa. These guys were basically like the Beatles of South Beach, you know? They And there's nowhere for them to go to get information about them. There's no, like, historical website. There's no museum. There's no real place to go. The, the one place where you'd think that they could go, right, the the Cuban Heritage Collection at the University of Miami. That's nothing. Uh, they, they only had that one interview with, well, with one. Jaime, and that That's was it. it. And, you know, you'd, you'd think there would be more stuff. So that's kind of what we were charged with and with this uh, with this project was kind of okay we have to unearth this information it's out there somewhere someone has to have something and mm -hmm. the more you tell people about it the more you know they can keep spreading the word you know if you've got pictures if you've got videos like please they like send, send them, them our over. way <laughs> send them our way so we can put it in here and and now like we're almost there we've we've got a, a product that that we can preserve and and thankfully the university of miami is is willing to to take this i mean just getting that in there is going to be quite an accomplishment i'm, I'm really just proud of that that we created something that now like future future generations or, or mm -hmm. future journalists or whoever wants to or people who are studying or curious about the the specific time or music down here, like, for example, if someone's writing a research paper on Cuban music in Miami, they have that at they have their, your film. for their leverage, you know? They have somewhere to go to, to find the information now. So that's sort of been a fun part of this journey, too. You guys are historians. That's Pretty right. much, yeah. I mean, we take it for granted living in the time that we, we do live in, where we have a lot of information on our phones and we can look up this kind of information. But for this you know, group, it was, it's just non-existent. It just wasn't recorded back then where now we can record anything we want, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, for, there's not even a Wikipedia page on these guys. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. You guys are doing, doing great work with this film. We no. promise we're not making it up. They did exist. <laughs> no. Yes, yes, yes. These people are all making this up. <laughs> no. Cojunto what? No. But, um, but the other plans for the future, you know, just being well known around the community as us as filmmakers, as legitimate filmmakers, saying like, hey, we went over this hump. We're up to the challenge for anything right now, you know? Johannes as a producer and me as a director, Michael as a fantastic co-director and DP. We're up for the challenge now. And so that will probably give our, our names out there and to say, hey, these guys are legitimate. They can go up for any challenge. This concludes the Conjunto Universal production podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.